Hello, my friends, Rob Warman here, and you are listening to the Stimulus Podcast, where we break down strategies, ideas, and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Now, at this point in the intro, I usually say something like, I'm a certified executive coach who works with physicians on overwhelm, burnout, maladaptive habits and behaviors, leadership, Yes, all of that, but now I'm going to add to that list documentation efficiency because it has come up a lot of late with both new and well-established clients. So I think the general theme is help docs reset and recalibrate their physician selves. If you want to learn more, just go to roborman.com where you can also set up a free coaching discovery session with me to get clarity on your challenges and goals and see if one-on-one coaching might be something you'd like to pursue. Our guest today is Dr. Gene Abbott, medical ethicist at the University of Colorado Health Science Center. Prior to that, a 30-year veteran of the emergency department at University of Colorado. She actually, she has an incredibly long CV. It's like 15 scrolls on my mouth. So I'm just going to leave it at there with one caveat that back in the day when I was a resident, she was my attending and really had a profound influence on who I became as a physician. So basically this pod is a medical equivalent of Luke Skywalker interviewing Yoda. Padawan to Jedi. This particular episode is more clinically focused than what we usually do, which is mindset, habits, reframing, etc. There's a, some of that in here, but it's more kind of nuts and bolts under the hood of what happens in the medical arena. And the impetus for this was several emails we received from listeners, from you, regarding ethical quandaries faced in clinical practice. And some of what we cover how to approach discordance between a patient's written wishes and a family member who says, do the opposite. The ethics of operating on demented patients who have an acute life-threatening illness. A case of a young man with an unsurvivable brain bleed and whether or not to extubate him before the family comes in the recess room. is pretty intense. I actually spoke with the doc on that one. I mean, lots of tears. Strategies to skillfully guide families through withdrawal of life support and the real consequences of restrictive hospital visitation policies. And uh, proviso here, this episode might not be one for young kids, you know, you're on your summer road trip, listen to podcasts, maybe save, save this one for just you or the adults. So here we go. Medical ethics in the real world with Dr. Gene Abbott. Let's jump in with the visitation policy because that has really caused a lot of stress in unexpected ways and on many levels in the inpatient units and the emergency department. And I think that initially some people might have been relieved that there were no visitors and you could actually just do your work. But as the dust has settled, that has become problematic in more ways than were expected. Yeah. It has, and it's very sad. And there are there are deaths. There are premature deaths. There are deaths of loneliness. There, yeah. What is the unexpected tragedy of this? And then, what's also the unexpected value of the visitor? Well, in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we had to 
back off completely and not even understanding how the virus was spread. And so, of course, the first reflex was to close down the hospitals, close down the ERs, close down the nursing homes, and not let anybody in who might get exposed to the virus that we might make sick when they were there. And then way too slowly, as we started to understand the virus better, we started to realize that it was probably okay and that there were safe ways to have visitors. But the rules changed very, very slowly. And um, I've heard a really good talk by Daniela Lamas, who's a critical care palliative care doc out of Boston, talking about visitor policy as being one of the enduring tragedies of this pandemic. Our tightening up of not letting people in that has a major effect. It has a major effect in acute care, in the ER and in the critical care units, where we don't have somebody who's speaking for the patient, speaking the patient's story, helping us understand things that the patient may not be able to convey. They aren't just visitors, she says. They are members of the team with input, give and take, and their voice is important. In the nursing homes, they've been seeing people who have dementia, for which the trajectory has been far steeper slope than it would be if people had engagement with their family and with the outside world people who are dying faster, who are just so lonely. These are deaths of loneliness that are occurring in nursing homes. So it's a huge problem. And if we don't come out of this thinking differently, it's going to be really sad. It is so impactful when there is someone else in the room. It's impactful even in the clinician's attentiveness. Oh, I think definitely. I think you hear more you listen better when there's two people that are giving you the information. We know that the patient hears more of our instructions, even if they have decisional capacity, if there is somebody in the room to hear our discharge instructions or to think about choices that they're making. So you've gone from kind of the micro ethics to macro ethics, with, <laughs> yeah, right? Make, making policy. And it's just yeah. you and, and I know another one of my old attendings and our old colleague, Steve Cantrell, and you guys are part of the statewide efforts on this. Is this something that you're addressing is what do we do about visitation policy? We're struggling right now. Actually, it's filtering up to a state and a federal level. Finally, CMS is starting to write some rules about it. But we've been screaming for a long time about it, trying to nudge hospitals to develop policies. In fact, in Colorado, our legislature has two bills in the current session to try to force hospitals to have a visitor policy and to always allow visitors. I do not think that that is the way that you solve this problem. Uh, legislative fixes just are ugly, blunt instruments, but I can understand why they're doing it. Well, let's jump into our cases. We were sent several cases by listeners dealing with medical ethics and end of life. And I thought, who better to talk with than my personal ethicist, the <laughs> professional ethicist, Dr. Gene Abbott. So let's call this doctor, Dr. Smith. And they have asked for anonymity to, because they frankly don't want, well, there's HIPAA and there's also, they just don't want their hospital knowing that this conversation is happening about stuff happening in their hospital. So 
Dr. Smith writes, a few weeks ago, I had a tough situation I wasn't sure how to navigate. A 45-year-old man, ooh, young, young patient, and yes. pre previously healthy, except for a mechanical heart valve on warfarin, was found unresponsive at home by his family. He was intubated en route by the paramedics as he was not protecting his airway. His GCS was three prior to intubation. And for non-medical listeners, that means he was completely unresponsive. Three is the lowest you can get. So no response to voice pain, the eyes are not open, no verbal response. His vital signs after intubation were stable. He came into the emergency department, got a CAT scan of the brain that showed a massive brain bleed, a massive intracranial bleed with shift and impending herniation. His INR was 2.2, meaning that the warfarin, the blood thinner, was having a clinical effect. Neurosurgery was consulted and said to make the patient this 45-year-old man who had been totally healthy, except for this mechanical valve, said to make that patient comfort care. There was nothing they could do. Neurocritical care was consulted and said, don't give prothrombin complex concentrate, so the rapid reversal agent for the blood thinner as the patient had no chance of survival and was non-operative. So far, it's like, oh, very medically the understandable. At this time, the family was in the waiting room. They had not seen the patient yet. There was a neurologist in the department, and this is a hospital that's got every specialty. The neurologist was in the department and with compassion told the family that their family member had an unsurvivable brain bleed and would unfortunately die from this event. So now... This ED doc is in the recess bay and says, I discussed with respiratory therapy and the nurse my opinion that removing the endotracheal tube and taking the patient off the ventilator prior to the family coming in the room might be the right thing to do. Otherwise, we ask permission to extubate. In my experience, patients families often say, no, do everything you can, or they debate for hours or days while calling family around the country. At this time, we were on divert and we had no beds in our ED. We had 28 medical borders, but I put the lobby patients at risk. You know, we couldn't see them in the ED. So I felt that extubating him and taking him off the ventilator before the family came in would inflict less psychic trauma as opposed to asking permission to pull the tube. I found that some families feel that they are the ones that cause the death when they are the ones that give permission. In the end, I ended up extubating and taking the patient off the vent. I did not ask the family permission. We pulled the tube, we put the patient on a little bit of oxygen. He then had a peaceful death over the next few hours family had no concerns or questions. I let the family cry on my shoulder. I cried with them. Such a tragic death at a young age. I felt that extubating the patient without permission and forcing them to decide was the most compassionate thing I could do for them. And the question he has is, did I do the right thing? This is a really hard and painful decision to have to make. We sometimes think that we have to ask permission to do things. But you may recall that the uh, AMA Code of Ethics says that we're not required to provide non-beneficial care, and that actually if the patient is brain dead, the patient is dead. We have 
ethics consults up in the ICU frequently that say, do I need permission to stop when the brain is dead? In this case, you can't say 100% that the patient is dead, dead physiologically, because it's too early to do that. But you have some very important things to balance in your care of the patient, of all of your patients, not just this patient. And I think that it's fair enough if what you are doing, how you're caring for the patient is non-beneficial, it's not going to change the course, you are allowed to do it in the way that you feel is best for your patients who now really are the family. If you're not going to be able to do anything for this patient to sustain life, then your your patients are the family. And doing it gracefully for them is the best choice that you can have. I wouldn't have faulted somebody for waiting with Uh, the tube in for the family to be able to say goodbye. But I wouldn't have asked their permission to take the tube out. I would say that this is a terminal condition that is not reversible, and therefore we will remove the tube. Now, occasionally you'll get a family that protests. You're telling them something extremely abrupt, particularly in a 44-year-old. And so, it's going to be really painful, but I do think that we have to be, paternalism is a bad word these days, but we do have to take leadership. And frankly, to ask the family if they want the tube removed or for permission puts more of a load on them than perhaps they deserve to have. We know that there's no coming back from this. But when you see someone lying there, you know, you see in the monitor, they've got a heartbeat. You see the ventilator, things are moving. There's, there's animus to it. And I always got this feeling that when we turned off the vent or turned off all the drips or, or whatever, that in some way, and sometimes this was vocalized by the family, you're killing them. Like you see that they are still alive. Like you are killing them. Two points there. One is that the whole concept of brain death is one that as a society we struggle with and as physicians we struggle with. Because if you declare somebody brain dead, they look the same five minutes before to the family as they do five minutes afterwards. We got stuck a few years ago with a young woman at Thanksgiving who was declared brain dead in the ICU. And the family said, could you wait? We don't want our holiday ruined. Somebody in the family had died at Christmas. That was already one ruined holiday. Can you go ahead and uh, keep her body alive? And we did in the ICU for seven more days. Mm. Huge, huge ethical issues. What do the nurses do? What does billing do? What do you put on the death certificate? So, we developed an algorithm which was, okay, if we declare somebody brain dead, we're going to do it in a ceremonial fashion where we remove the ventil- uh, we remove the ventilator, whatever life support, and we do this in a sort of ceremony with the family gathered around, even though perhaps the neurologist said this half an hour ago, 
six hours ago, whatever, because it needs some kind of closure and action that helps bracket this patient's life. You were saying it feels uncomfortable to withdraw as a clinician and as the family. Are you killing the patient? And that's another hot ethical debate. What's the difference between withdrawing and withholding? The theoretical philosophical ethicists say that they are morally equivalent. <laughs> and I think that's bullshit. Um, I think that, that it feels different to withdraw something that's been started than it does to never do it at all. But the ER is the classic place where we overtreat, if you will. Or we start things that turn out to not be either beneficial or according to the patient's wishes, but we don't know it at the time. And it's actually oftentimes in the ER, sometimes in the critical care unit, probably ethically superior to withdraw than to withhold. So it's our obligation to get our own heads screwed around right to be able to say, ah, we started this just to buy some time to let you get here. We frame this as a, we want this to be an orderly thing. We weren't sure what was going to, the future was going to hold or what his wishes were. And now we'll withdraw it. And we need to be comfortable with it. And then we have to help the family have language to say, you know what, we tried it, they waited until we got there, and then they stopped it. And it was just a bridge to make sure exactly where mm. things lay. Putting it that way versus just having it nebulous and we don't know what's going on. It's just, uh, this is a bridge. The arc of their life has ended and right. we, we're ha gonna have you here for their death. And you were talking about the ceremony. What, what is that ceremony like? What happens? It can be very, very small. It can just be, let's gather together so that we're all here. Let's just take a moment. This is a solemn ending to the life of somebody that was very, very important to you and who was very alive. Whatever you know, whatever little, and we're going to remove it now. And then we may have to turn off the monitor after a few minutes. We've all pronounced people, um, but these brain death ones are an awful lot harder than the respiratory or the cardiac ones, because those are the three things that used to, when one went, the other two went within five minutes, but now all bets are off. Do you turn off the monitor before you turn off the ventilator? And I ask because... It can be helpful in one way to say, okay, here's what's going on, but it can also be a tremendous distraction that, oh, look, on the heart monitor, they're still alive, they're still alive, and that becomes the focus as opposed to just kind of sitting there with the moment of what's happening and just being present for the death rather than really zeroing in on the cascading downward trajectory of heartbeats on the heart monitor. I think you can do it either way, but I think what you have to do is prime the family. And I think most people will let the monitor stay on a little bit, but then they have to warn the family 
you know, there's going to be some electrical activity. There's no pump associated with that. And we see this. Sometimes it lasts a long time and it can be distressing. So we'll turn it off after a while if that is upsetting. The same thing happens with brain death. My neurologists in the critical care unit have taught me that there are spinal reflexes that happen when somebody is brain dead. And they say nurses do not roll the body after patient is brain dead because you may get some myoclonic jerks, some some kind of twitching that's a spinal reflex, and that will really be crazy making for the family. Mm. So, lots of nuances about the fact that we've spread the distance between a respiratory death, a cardiac death, and a brain death. You are in the room with this doctor in their recess bay. You're a guide for them and say, hey, I'd recommend doing it this way that might make it easiest, not necessarily like the easy way, but the most skillful way to go about it. What would your recommendation be or what would you do? Are you talking about the extubation or the interaction with the family or what? Oh, I love that you stack that question. So of course my answer is yes, (laughs) all of the above. You've got your consultants, you've got agreement with your consultants, and this is not your decision. You and I might say, oh, but we could just stick a little needle in there and drain and blah, 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 kind of thing. We're, we're doers. So I think what I would do is, number one, you have to play to the individual situation. So is the family out there? Do we know anything about them? Are there disagreements? Is there electricity in the air? Is there just total panic, sadness, etc.? But it's your job to be in charge and to be calm and to say, I'm going to remove, I would probably bring them into the room and say, his brain is not going to recover. I have unanimity from all of my consultants. I wanted to bring you back so that you could touch him and you could say your goodbyes. And we're going to remove the tube and give them a little bit of time and then go ahead and remove it in you know that little sort of mini ceremony where you take a deep breath and say, okay, now is time to remove the tube. And you have to sort of erase the bubble over your head that says, now they're paging me for the other five patients. And you probably want a chaplain in there and a social worker, whoever you have that can spend the duration of time. That's one of the reasons for sort of delaying this is to garner some of your resources for the family so that they can stay longer with the family, just as we do with any death disclosure that we do in the waiting room or the the private, hopefully, waiting room um, for a patient who comes in in cardiac arrest and we just pronounce. What do you think is the skillful way to leave the room? I think it's important to allow a little bit of space to let any questions right now that surface come forth, to allow the family a a little bit of time for you not to seem pressed. And then I think what you have to do is say, I really am sorry. I'm leaving you with my colleagues here. I've got an ER full of patients that I'm going to have to see, but I will try to come back and they'll track me down if you have some more questions. So I think the the promise of non-abandonment, if you will, um, that I'll come back. All right, don't fast forward. This is where I usually put in the 
Patreon promo. And I'm doing it right now. But there's something special about this one that's new. Yes, this podcast is supported in part by you, our listeners, our Patreons. And if you find value in the show, throw a couple of coins in the hat, as it were. Support production costs, help keep the wind in the sails. You know, the show ain't free to produce. Bitty bongo. But then what do you get extra if you are a Patreon? Well, I mean, of course you get the show and our heartfelt thanks for the support. And we do have some things in the works as bonuses for our Patreons. But right now, we've got something completely and utterly ridiculous. When you become a Patreon, should you consent to such? We will not do this without your consent. So we send out a little note afterwards saying if it's okay for you, we will name a disease or a syndrome after you. When you become a stimulus Patreon. Yes, you will be eponymized in the annals of medicine. So for example, Jake Danoff, Dr. Jake Danoff, Patreon, little known fact that Jake is the originator of Yakov Danoff syndrome. Now that is a very rare form of aphasia that comes from acute stoke intoxication. You are so stoked, like you just went whitewater rafting or mountain biking, or you had this amazing piece of sushi. You're just so stoked. You can't, you can't, you can't even talk. Jakob Danoff syndrome. Zachary Ost, Patreon, first to coin the name for the phenomenon of testicular torsion that appears and disappears all on its own. You know that that happens, but did you know it had a name? Yeah. Ost's relapsing testicle. And Robert Allen, Patreon. When you call a consultant and the response on the other end is, hey, would it be okay if I you know, just came in and took a look at that patient? What? That is the Robert Allen phenomenon. It's rare, but when it happens, I mean, you just have this dopamine surge. And listeners, if you are Patreon curious, there's a link in our show notes to the Patreon page. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Gene Abbott. You had mentioned something earlier with the case of keeping the young woman alive through the holidays and thinking about this more acutely. So this was a, you know, re resource poor situation, right? This was, yes. this was during peak COVID. I think that this actually happened during um, Omicron surge. And then you get requests from the family say, Hey, our sister is flying in. She just wants to be here before you exhibit, before you do this. Like, can you just keep things going until then she'll be here in six hours? So, um, very much of a judgment call in the crisis standards that we updated for Colorado, for instance, during the COVID pandemic, we do not have to do CPR. We do not have to delay pronouncing death. And we ask for assent from the family for withdrawing the ventilator, but not consent. These are sort of interesting ooh, changes ooh. in policy that some of us um, would like to see perhaps sustained beyond the pandemic, because some of this feels very stressful, particularly, as you point out, in the resource-scarce situation. But we do 
accommodate this in our society, which values individual requests and wishes probably more than is good for the society in general. So it'll be interesting to see how this evolves coming out the other end in the new normal. As yeah. we say. What, what would you say in that situation? In this th- in environment? Oh, I would say, I'm sorry, if um, that in normal instances, we would be happy to accommodate this, but we can't right now because there are people dying in the emergency department who I need to attend to and our hospital beds are too short to allow that. I'm sorry. It's the art of medicine has to come through there with true compassion. It can feel like it's adversarial, but you've you've got compassion for your other patients and this family and you understand like, oh, this is so hard, but this is unfortunately how it has to be right now. Sometimes the way that you say it can make a difference. There's a small minority of people for whom nothing will make a difference. And that's why we wrote the policy. Well, our next case, keeping on this (laughs) unicorn and rainbows moment, (laughs) involves another brain bleed, but with a little bit of a different situation. This doctor also requested to be anonymous since there was a little bit of contention involved in this case. And so we will call this Dr. Jones. Dr. Smith is the last one, Dr. Jones. I was going to say like Dr. Peppercorn or Dr. Pepper, but then Dr. Pepper is the drink. So (laughs) I had to think up a Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones. So Dr. Jones's case. This was a 60-year-old woman with early-onset dementia who presented from an adult foster care facility for vomiting and behavioral changes. And listeners, I have changed the ages and some of the details just to make a little bit of an anonymity here. So it's not exactly what Dr. Jones wrote in, but the medical details are exactly the same. So at baseline, she speaks one to two words, is ambulatory, and seems happy. CT scan shows a large subdural hematoma with midline shift. So a similar situation as before, like shift, so this brain could herniate and then that's that's game over, but a subdural hematoma is something you can evacuate. There is no power of attorney. There is no family available at this time. There is no pulsed form. You have a surgical disorder And the neurosurgeon comes down, so the neurosurgeon and I sign a two-physician consent for emergency surgery. The anesthesiologist comes down for the pre-op and says, this is crazy. This is wrong. Why are we doing this? Anesthesiologist is strongly opposed to the proceeding. Dr. Jones's replies, I understand where he's coming from. However, in the U.S., without an emergency ethics consult to back us up, We can't casually deny life-saving surgery to this patient. Anesthesiologist grumbles, then takes the patient to the OR. I'm fairly confident I did the right thing in this case. However, what if the patient were a bedridden, severely demented, non-communicative patient with a PEG tube? Would it have been appropriate if we decided as a team of physicians to withhold a life-saving procedure in the absence of a pulsed family and power of attorney? I've never gotten an emergency ethics consult, and I wonder if it's really an option at 2 a.m. on a weekend. A little bit of a similar flavor. It's not exactly end of life, but you are making a decision of somebody who is demented, seems happy, but minimally communicative, does not have decisional capacity, now is, is altered and has a subdural. And then you've got 
disagreements. Neurosurgeons like, yeah, all right, let's go do neurosurgery. Anesthesiologist, this is insane. Don't you love it when we have to mediate between our specialists who are arguing back and forth with each other? It comes with the territory, I'm afraid. Why in the ER do we over-treat? That's what we're worried about. We're worried that we're over-treating this patient. And there's a few reasons why we do this, not uncommonly in the ER. One is that we don't know what the wishes are. We don't have advanced directives. The advanced directives may not be pertinent here. We don't have a post form, like you said, Rob. Or people change their mind or their family says, wait, time out. She may have said that, but she doesn't mean that in this. And sometimes we have to throw <laughs> up our heads. So and so we can delve into that later. The second thing is we have no, sometimes we don't know what the outcome is. It's sort of in the gray zone. We, you know, is, would this make this patient better? Would better be better enough for her? And so we overtreat. And the third thing is the tempo with which we need to intervene. And in this case, certainly there's a tempo problem. There are getting to be more and more of these tempo issues that we can talk about later, Rob, but things that we have to do before we can find family, you know, whether it's draining a subdural or treating sepsis or intubating or ECMO or cooling after a cardiac arrest, all sorts of things that we end up doing and they're getting to be more and more of them without being able to get informed consent. I don't think the, the myth of the double doc consent is even necessary here. It's an emergency. In an emergency, we err on the side of life. Now, we would love to mind the gap, as the Brits would say, and do less over-treating and certainly not close our eyes and say, well, I'll just do everything and they can sort it out upstairs. That drives me nuts. We need to be better than that in the ER. But in this case, I think you did right. You have no idea what her quality of life is right now. There is a huge debate in the end-of-life community about what to do about contented dementia. You know, the person who enjoys. That's exactly what this <laughs> and, is. And yeah. Um, and is that a joyful life? Can we judge that with our cognitively intact selves who say, well, my God, if you couldn't read the Wall Street Journal, life isn't worth living? No, you have to accept that you don't know the background in this case. You drain the subdural. If this doesn't go the way we want it to, there are exit ramps for people afterwards. And I think we forget that sometimes in the ER. You know, it's not just the one decision. Sometimes we can temporize and buy time. We can do non-invasive ventilation. We can give a whiff of antibiotics. We can do a little fluid resuscitation. In something like this, you really do have to just go for it because you know you'll get the best possible outcome. And then when the family comes in, then that's the next conversation that you and I sometimes have to have. Sometimes we duck it because the neurosurgeon has a conversation, but we should be ready to have that conversation once again to say, we thought we'd give her the best chance. We didn't know what your wishes were, and we will see how her body does. I like to use her body, not her because it's not like she doesn't have the intent to get better if she has that much cognitive function, but her body may not be able to respond to whatever this intervention is. 
or it may be not what she wanted. And that's okay. In this case, we can stop doing the life support that we're doing. We needed to buy time until we could sort this out with you. Well, I want to get a little deeper into advanced directives, right? You, you, had, you, you had emphasized, I, I could, listeners, you can see Jean's face, but that there's no pulsed form, which is a challenge. But even if a pulse, some, some states think call them a most, um, but what actually, what does that stand for? What does pulse stand for? Physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. Okay. And that's the sort of national paradigm, but every state has to have their own acronym so that they're different, <laughs> but they all are about the same. Let's say this patient did have one of those and it comes in and which is more often than not when someone comes from a nursing home, usually they have, or a foster care, usually they have someone, this is a, you know, clearly an outlier. Well, I mean, not clearly, but let's just say an outlier. You've got this form that says comfort care only, no life sustaining measures. At the same time, the patient's daughter who has medical power of attorney comes in and says, that's a bunch of BS because you do everything for my mom right now. You're going to have to intubate. You're going to have yeah. to support. Yeah. yeah that's life-sustaining. Like, yeah. You're going to be in the unit for a while. You're going to be on this. And the other says, just please save my mom. Do this for my mom. So you right now you have person in the room, POA, you've got this individual's post form, which maybe the daughter even signed as the POA when the patient had already developed dementia. Uh, or let's say the patient signed it. I don't know if it makes a difference. And now you're stuck with document with patient's wishes or patient's wishes by proxy and family member who says, do the opposite. <laughs> well, posts have helped us. They've moved us forward from advanced directives that are just advisory and are in the abstract. So the purpose of the Pulse form is based on your current health condition. I have terminal cancer and I don't want to go to the hospital if at all possible, or I do want a full court press, et cetera. These are orders signed with a doc that protect us from liability if we follow them if they're reasonable. The problem comes when they were written 10 years ago, or when somebody overrules them, or when the circumstances change. We've learned a lot about this in the time of COVID, when people sort of all of a sudden scrutinize the advanced directives that they've written, or even sometimes the post forms, and said, well, wait a minute, here's an acute situation. I never thought of it as, oh my God, dying in the ICU with a pneumonia intubated without my family around, I'm going to change what I'm thinking about. And so people do peer into the abyss and change their minds. Families peer into the abyss because they aren't ready. Sometimes it's for reasons that make our eyes roll a little bit. They sort of say, oh, I'm not ready. This wasn't what I was thinking of. Do everything because we oftentimes equate love with doing everything. And at that point, I think in the ED, you're going to have to acquiesce to the daughter. Again, realizing that there are exit ramps when the dust settles and when she gets her support around her and when she can sort this through and we can give a better prognostic, not us, but the neurosurgeon can give a better prognostic estimate of, you know what, she's going to be on the ventilator for the rest of her life or boy, you got to her quickly, 
I think she'll go back to being in the nursing home kind of thing. We don't know what the outcome is. That's that other reason that we overtreat. One thing that you taught me many years ago in, in these situations when you've got someone's pulsed form and it says, do, I don't even know if it was pulsed form back then, but it was <laughs> some sort of message from the past to say, hey, here are my wishes. And then you have a family who says, no, 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 no. That's not what you do. You do everything, you know, like coming at you. When you are grieving and in that shock, action is much easier than processing, right? Do something. Do, do something. something. <laughs> and there's a, I actually don't know if you said this word this time, but I, it, it is, I found one of the most powerful phrases in these conversations is to sit down and you've really got to sit down and just engage with the family and say, well, tell me where they are in the arc of their life. Yeah. And what is this event in the arc of their life? That question, I've never seen it not give the room pause to say, whoa. It's interesting because sometimes they'll say, but six months ago, she was up taking dancing lessons and everything like yeah. that. Okay, how about three months ago? Or how about, you know, it, it is interesting for people to reflect. Sometimes we can do that in the ED and sometimes we just don't have time. Yeah. Um, but this is one reason I like doing ethics more in the critical care unit. I have a little more time to sit down yeah. with people. And sometimes we can't do that in the ER. But one thing we can do, and I don't think we do enough of, is prime families. Okay, we took her to the OR. There are going to be people who are going to sit down with you and think about how is she, what gives her joy in life? What is she suffering from? What has been the arc of that, that last bit of her life? And they're going to talk with you about where they want to go after that. Because, heck, she's going to come out of the OR intubated. She's going to come out with a bunch of lines. She's going to develop sepsis. She's going to develop an aspiration. There are all sorts of exit ramps that will happen. The other one that we sometimes use in the ER or in the um, ICU in an ethics consult is we leave an empty chair and we say, if she were sitting here now, what do you think she'd say? Oh, you know, getting that perspective, pulling it away from what the family wants, which is the reflex. It's, oh my God, I'm not ready for her to go. What would she want? And then flipping that. I, I want to take something tangentially related here to informed consent in a patient who could potentially benefit from a life-saving procedure or something that would potentially benefit them, but can't give informed consent for whatever reason. Let's say someone has a stroke and they have a fairly dense deficit. They have an aphasia where they can't really communicate what to do. And you see an MCA sign, a big clot. You're not in an endovascular center and you talk with the neurologist. Yeah, let's give them lytics. Let's ship them out to get that clot pulled out. You make all these big decisions. Patient's got no involvement in it. Family's not there yet. You know, they're you know, trying to get in. They're trying to come in. What to do in these situations? What is the ethical thing to do when you can't get the informed consent in the point of care? Well, I think that's a problem that's 
going to be happening more and more as we develop these protocols in the emergency department that are super time dependent. I think the ethical thing to do is to err on the side of life. Yeah, you want to look around quickly and make sure that this isn't a 97-year-old who has a most form or a pulsed form that protects you as you say, I'm going to treat the symptoms, I'm going to make him comfortable, and I'm not going to do the invasive lytics. But otherwise, you're going to have to do that. And then when the family arrives, you're going to have to say, we chose to err on the side of life. And I think most families understand and appreciate that, actually, that you erred on the side of life. But this is a trial to see if his body can respond. This is a trial. And it may have been an error if that wasn't his value system, but we couldn't know that at the time. We can do a time-limited trial of lytics or of pneumonia treatment to see what happens. We don't use the phrase time-limited trial enough, I think. And then I think with these big deal things, like, for instance, cooling after a cardiac arrest or ECMO these days now coming into emergency departments, it's got to be a part of the protocol that we are going to sit down with you in 24 hours and go over what we've done. Sometime when we're making cooler decisions, not hot decisions, and when we can sit down and explain things to you and maybe even tell you a little about the trajectory that he has taken since we did this intervention, and then we'll decide with you and you'll decide with us where we go from there. So a commitment to not doing things willy-nilly, overriding them, recognizing that we were unable to get informed consent, but a commitment to get informed consent going forward within a specified time period. I want to finish up with the daughter from California. (laughs) The daughter from California. Listeners, that may or may not be a phrase you are familiar with. That is something Gene taught me. And... (laughs) The do- I'm gonna, I, I pulled this up from Wikipedia. All right. So, and I'm going to present a daughter from California case after this definition. So the daughter from California and different states are used depending on your area of the country out West. <laughs> now I know we, we have thousands of listeners in California and I'm not meaning this to be pejorative to you. No, to- no. There's also the nephew from Peoria. Nephew I've from heard Peoria. that one. <laughs> yeah, Peoria. Yes. Okay. So, all right. The daughter from California, in quotations, is often described as angry, articulate, and informed. Medical professionals say that because the daughter from California has been absent from the life and care of the elderly patient, they are frequently surprised by the scale of the patient's deterioration and may have unrealistic expectations about what is medically feasible. They may feel guilty. Aha about having been absent and may therefore feel motivated to reassert their role as an involved caregiver. And if you are in medicine in any capacity, you have met the daughter from California, the nephew from Peoria, the son from Santiago. (laughs) (laughs) So let's here, here's the scenario. You have an elderly demented patient, no advanced directive, who told the family before they became demented 
that they did not want life-sustaining care. Just allow a natural death. Now they present to you with a severe illness. You suspect strongly that the trajectory is going to be they'll die in short order without mechanical ventilation, vasopressor support, critical care. Oftentimes this is pneumonia with septic shock. Her son who has been visiting his mother in the nursing home for the past five years is in attendance and says, this is what my mom would want. Just allow her natural death, die peacefully. Let's get some, let's get some fans on a little morphine. Let's make her comfortable, turn the lights down. And then out of the blue, you get a phone call and it is the patient's daughter who has not seen her for a few years and says, there is no way you're letting my mom die. You will do everything you can to keep her alive. Do you understand me? And now you've just met the daughter from California. How do you navigate <laughs> this? And the brother is just rolling his eyes as you have this on speakerphone. It's like, oh, geez, we come on, come on. No way, no way. What do you do? You've just opened Pandora's box um, <laughs> into the life of a family that is conflictual. Yeah. Wikipedia did a good job of the differential. I teach this a lot to my palliative care colleagues in our master's program here at CU, the differential of the daughter from California, which is guilt, estrangement, lots of other things. My life was too busy. I didn't get to see mom. Yeah, my brother called me and told me that she was deteriorating. So there's a lot of unfinished business and you are not going to be able to sort it out in the ER. This takes therapy. This takes my palliative care colleagues upstairs spending days hearing the background story and stuff like that. I think, unfortunately, in the ER, you're going to piss somebody off. You're going to have to say to the, to the daughter, hopefully, the son is assigned her agent as MDPOA and has the legal decision-making capacity. Now, that is not the end-all and be-all. I've seen families where the person with who's the agent with the MDPOA says, I know what mom wants, but my five sisters are saying no, and I've got to live with them afterwards. That's, that's going to be my community after this event is over. And so sometimes you do have to temporize and you have to see part of our skills in the ER are to think of ways to minimally support somebody so that we're least invasive that we can be. Do I want to do non-invasive ventilation for her? Do I want to give her a whiff of antibiotics? Do I want to buy her a couple of days up in the ICU, even though I know and the son knows that it's futile? But just to see if we can settle this situation down. Um, <laughs> I've had ethics consults where somebody said, I need the family to be in the room when we uh, turn this patient to, uh, so that they can see how much su she is suffering. That's a little bit ethically gray zone, but sometimes a little bit of time helps. But at a certain point, you need to draw the line. The line is probably not well drawn in the ED. You really don't want to duke this out in a matter of minutes. So you may have to call up your critical care colleague with deep apologies and deep humility and say, we've got a conflicted family. I think that comfort-focused care is what she needs, but unfortunately, it needs to be intensive for right now until we can sort it out 
and I'm sorry, and I've called palliative care, and I've called the chaplain, <laughs> and we're going to try to get this sorted out because it's really hard to sort it out in the ER. Have you ever managed, Rob? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I mean, you, uh, I, there's the very rare occasion where it gets extreme where – you know, Chuck, who's sitting at the bedside, is is like, okay, yeah, this is this is how it's been going with mom. And then Petunia is on the line, says, Chuck, how could you do this? And Chuck says, Petunia, just knock it off. This is what we're doing. That's like, I, I'm the POA here, and this, oh, Chuck, he's such a bastard. My strategy was to, and, and this might be a little paternalistic, but was to side with the patient and say, yeah, Petunia, I hear you. I know you're in California and I, I, I hate to say this, but your mom is dying right now. And I like that, yeah. We, there's a lot of things that we can do to maybe prolong her life a little bit more, but these things are invasive. And I, it sounds like not really aligned with her values of what she'd want at the end of life. Yeah, there's there's lots of sort of choices there. One is to say, I'm sitting here with the documents and yeah. with her son, and they're in alignment, and I need to honor her. That's that's yeah. my responsibility. Sometimes I would not even say there's lots of things we could do. I might invoke the fact that physiologically she's dying and leave it at that. Good. Taking it out of their burden of responsibility for them yeah. is something that I think is part of our obligation. I know that paternalism has a, ha, is a bad word, but sometimes we have deferred to families so much that it, it adds pain to them to be the ones who are having to duke it out with each other, whereas we could say, class, let's settle down. She's dying kind of thing. You bring up a really important point is that the pendulum has strung, swung so much to the other way that, you know, we, it's like, oh, we just kind of facilitate what families want. That in this time, I think there is a role or a posture for you to also be a guide. You know, right. you're, you're a guide, you're a facilitator, yes, but you are, you are the guide. And it's a little uncomfortable to take the reins because you are making decisions saying like, hey, they just decided they're going this way. It's like, mm, no, here's, here's probably the way we should go here. That's leadership. It's not discounting what they want, but it's helping them to, to construct the narrative for the future. That's one of the things that we do when people are dying is we help their family to make the story. And if the make the story is she struggled a lot, but her body just gave out, that's helpful to them. Then they don't say, well, I pulled the plug kind of thing and killed her. <laughs> okay, I, I want to finish up with a very weird question. <laughs> it's a very weird question. This situation happened. I can I'm picturing the room. It was bed three in a ED I worked in, and there was a woman came in with some kind of a surgical issue, and I think didn't want care for it. And she just had some total decisional capacity. She was bed bound and, uh, and and the like, and it was you know clear that eventually she probably wouldn't have decisional capacity. And her daughter was there, who was delightful, and was her medical power of attorney. And I'm just here talking with her mom, both of them, same time. And mom says, "Yeah, I really don't want treatment for this." And her daughter says, "You know, I'm her medical power of attorney, and I say you take her to the operating room right now." 
<laughs> like, well, I'm not thinking that's how this works, but this is a really weird situation. No, and uh, no. like, when does that power of attorney kick in? It doesn't kick in until the patient loses decisional capacity. So if she is able to communicate with you, understand her choices, and give you a reason why she's choosing what she's doing, then she's in charge. The power of attorney doesn't kick in until that patient loses consciousness. And I'll never forget when Peter Rosen proposed this thing. So do you wait until the patient passes out and then you overrule them? Uh, no. If you have a proximate wish that is pertinent to the situation at hand, you still honor that even if she becomes unconscious. Hard choices. It's funny how these moments just get burned into your your brain. Uh, that scene from The Princess Bride when uh, Nigo Montoya says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> One of the ones that I like to use is we're in a different place now, which is sometimes the way we not overrule, but move beyond advanced directives or a post form even and say, yeah, I know she said she wanted a full court press, but we're in a different place now. Mm. Well, on that note, Gene, let us close this up. I suspect we are going to have a lot of listener questions that are as, as some follow-up episodes. Hopefully we can get you back on the show. Well, the nice thing about ethics is there's no right answers. There's a lot of discussion and there are different ways that different people approach things. So good luck. Oh, thank you so much, Gene. It's been a real treat. It's been a delight to be chatting with you, Rob. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one -on -one coaching and or sign up for a free coaching discovery session, check us out at roborman.com. That's also where you'll find the complete show notes for this or any other episode, a few free EMR charting templates, a new thing we've got. There you can also sign up for our newsletter and we've got a few other surprises on the site. You might say, well, what are those surprises? Well, they're surprises. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.